This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur podcast, podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in today's episode, we have a dinosaur of the day, Antarctopelta. You could probably start to guess where that might be from. No. <laughs> Total mystery. We have a ton of dinosaur news. And this is the last week we're going to ask everyone to take our survey. There you go. Ask, not beg. Yeah. Well, we got 31 responses now. Whoa. So the begging may have worked pretty well. Or the asking nicely. We'll never know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next week, we're going to roll out some SVP special Patreon rewards based partly on the listener survey. So thank you to everybody who has responded. And also, we'd like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Scotty, Jackson, Megan Dixon, Eric Keller, and Kessler, who's new this week. So thanks, Kessler. Yay! Welcome to the Stegosauruses! (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And Kessler makes the 19th Stegosaurus patron, so we're 19 of 50 slots filled. Whoa. Yeah. So if you want to- almost halfway. Yeah. So they're, they're going fast. (laughs) (laughs) in a year they're like half full so so make sure you've got at least a year (laughs) yeah if you want to get in on that you got a year ish sweet sweet stegosaurus and get a shout out every month yeah so if you want to do that check out our page at patreon.com slash i know dido we also offer other reward tiers So jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur genus and species. Surprise! It's been a couple weeks since we had one. We had a couple of those Chinese troodontids that are ubiquitous, apparently. But this one is named Europa Titan Eastwood Eye. And yes, Eastwood Eye does refer to Clint Eastwood. I was just going to ask. So it's in a paper published in Pure J, which is open access, and I like that because then you can get all the details about it, by Fidel Fernandez Baldor and others. And the dinosaur was formerly known as El Oterio II, I guess. It's got like Roman numeral two. But like I said, now it's called Europa Titan Eastwood Eye. <laughs> and the reason they named it after Clint Eastwood is because the good, the bad, and the ugly was partially filmed nearby. Hmm. There you go. I'm sure my dad will be excited about that because that's one of his favorite movies. It is pretty <laughs> good. It's got a lot of quotable lines in it. <laughs> and if you're wondering where the good, the bad, and the ugly or this dinosaur was discovered, 
It was about 100 miles north of Madrid, near Salas de los Infantes in Spain. And you know that Eastwood Eye is in reference to Clint Eastwood, but Europa Titan means European giant, basically. European giant Eastwood. Yep. <laughs> Since it's called a Titan, you also might guess that it is a Titanosaur, and you would be right. It's pretty complete, too. They found a tooth, 15 vertebrae, 16 ribs, both of the shoulder blades, some toes, and parts of the hips. It's from the early Cretaceous, about 120 to 130 million years ago, and it's related to Saltosaurus. The neck vertebrae are very pneumatized, which means lightened by air pockets, so it probably had a really long neck like Giraffe Titan or one of the other long-necked sauropods. They didn't estimate the overall size or weight of the animal, and I'm thinking maybe that's because they were missing the femur or some of the other limb bones that they usually use to estimate that kind of thing. But they do say it was a large titanosauriform, and as far as titanosauriforms go, they're already big. So if it's large in that group, that makes it pretty enormous. For scale, the largest vertebra that they recovered was 95 centimeters or 3 feet and an inch wide and 77 centimeters or 2.5 feet tall. So that's just one vertebra <laughs> and it's like half the size of a person. So pretty massive. And even with that huge size, part of that vertebra was missing and it was probably significantly taller than that even. Big old guy. I hope Clint Eastwood is happy with his new namesake. Do you think he knows? I don't know. I couldn't find any like articles about it outside of the peer-reviewed published one, so I didn't see much about like the commentary about the naming or anything like that. It was all just the very scientific details. And next up is a potential new dinosaur. This one's from an article published in FASEB by Noel Carrillo and others. And what these researchers did is they were looking at some of Charles Sternberg's excavations from 1922, and they found some hadrosaurid material, and that, that's usually how they describe it. We don't often use that word on the podcast, but they usually say like material rather than bones. I don't know why, but it's like postcranial material rather than postcranial bones. Anyway. These bones were from San Juan County in New Mexico, which is one of the counties that touches the Four Corners, if you're familiar with that super exciting spot in the U.S. <laughs> where four states intersect. <laughs> but non-American people probably have never heard of this because it's really not that exciting. It's like the middle of the desert, isn't it? I don't know that all Americans know either. Yeah. What are the states? I think it's Utah, Colorado. Colorado New Mexico, Arizona? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So they touch, and there's only one place in the U.S. where there's like four states that intersect. But that's all you can do is just yeah, it's like in the middle of the desert, right? One state each, but there's nothing there, nothing else. Have you there. been to that? No, I've seen pictures. Yeah, I haven't been there either. I don't feel a need to see it. <laughs> it just looks super remote, and then there's like a little thing on the ground, like, "Hey, look, you can you can be in all four states at once right here." Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that's a thing. And that's where this hadrosaur was found, basically. So when these researchers were reviewing the remains, they found a humerus, which is that upper arm bone like we have, that's 86 centimeters or nearly three feet long and 17.6 centimeters or about seven inches in diameter, which is pretty huge. And it's too big for any of the known hadrosaurs from the area. 
So what they're thinking is, well, you know, it must be a new hadrosaur. The seven inches in diameter part is super thick for a humerus, especially in a hadrosaur with that length of a humerus. So that indicates that it was probably pretty heavy and stocky, even for a hadrosaur, which are already kind of heavy in general. And for some context, the human humerus is about a third the length, but only about a tenth as wide. Hmm. And since it's kind of a volume thing, you know, if you imagine something like a bone, it's round. So if you're just measuring the diameter, that's basically only half of it. You want to like square the diameter to kind of get the relationship. They do a volume per length kind of thing. So it's like way, way stronger than our arm bone would be. So had to probably support quite a bit more weight. <laughs> yep. Speaking of hadrosaurs, sort of, a near complete skeleton of an iguanodon was found at a brick factory in Surrey, UK. Jamie Jordan, who founded the website and museum Fossils Galore, and his colleague Sarah Moore, they did a routine visit to Weinerberger Quarry back in February and found tail vertebrae that were actually, they were black bones, that they were dug up by a bulldozer. So they've nicknamed the Iguanodon Indy. It's a pretty good one. Hmm. And it's being cleaned in a prep lab at the Fossils Galore Museum so visitors can see it happening. And once it's cleaned up and prepared, they're going to put it on display. Is it nicknamed after Indiana Jones? There was no explanation of the nickname, so I don't know. I'm guessing it is. <laughs> <laughs> Next, scientists from the Fukui Prefecture in Japan have found a new fossil tooth of a large carnivorous theropod that lived 80 million years ago. They think it could be a type of tyrannosaur, and they found the crown of the tooth, which is 42 millimeters long. And they think the full length could be more than 56 millimeters. The tooth has serrated edges and may have been in the upper left jaw or lower right jaw. And there's not too much information other than that about it. But if there's more that comes up, we'll keep you posted. Yeah, that's pretty big. That's like two to three inches, basically. Mm -hmm. More dinosaur tracks have been found in Dinosaur Valley State Park in Texas. There was recently heavy rainfall, which caused flooding in the nearby river. And that exposed seven new dinosaur tracks in the main track area. And apparently that happens a lot when there's heavy rainfalls. So they see a lot of new dinosaur tracks. Yeah, it reminds me of when we were talking to Bruce Schumacher about like the meandering, what is it, picket wire <laughs> river <laughs> where it uncovers new tracks. And then sometimes old tracks get buried. So they have to try to control the erosion if they don't want the water to do too much. Yeah. And speaking of tracks, there's a bunch of peer-reviewed articles about dinosaur tracks. I'm going to start with the largest trackway, which was published in GeoBios. It was behind a paywall, so I couldn't get too much information. And written by Jean-Michel Mazine and others. And I found some information from when the trackway was originally discovered. So back in 2009, a teacher and a geologist stumbled upon a couple of what appeared to be sauropod tracks. And so they called in some paleontologists who now, almost 10 years later, have published their results. <laughs> so it was near Plagne, France, in the Alps. And if you search for Plagne track, you get bobsled tracks because apparently... They also have a lot of winter sports going on there. Or were the dinosaurs bobsledding there? <laughs> then maybe, <laughs> if they were going to do it somewhere. Although, actually, how old are the Alps? I don't know. I'd have to check if the Alps were around yeah, back then. Yeah, probably weren't. I don't know. The Alps are kind of old. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's from a late Jurassic formation near the Swiss border. And the Swiss side already has about a 100-meter-long sauropod trackway. 
and Portugal had the record at 150 meters. And at the time, the researchers said, quote, we will undoubtedly have more than 150 meters at Plagne. Did they make it? Yes. <laughs> they ended up with 155 meters, so just barely, which is about 509 feet. And yeah, so now they have the longest sauropod trackway, at least in that area. And they assigned the tracks to Brontopodus plonensis, and obviously the species name comes from... Where it was found. Yeah. And then Brontopodus is already an existing genus. Apparently, some of the tracks are up to two meters or six and a half feet wide, so pretty massive prints too. And like I said, it was behind a paywall, so I couldn't see too much of the detail about the trackway, but it looks like there were a couple different little patches, but there was at least one that was very long of like a single individual or maybe a couple individuals walking. So pretty cool. If you happen to be going there for some bobsledding or something, maybe swing <laughs> by, see some dinosaur tracks. Or if you're going there for dinosaur tracks, you can also go bobsledding. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it takes to get onto a bobsled. <laughs> there are also some new dinosaur tracks published right on the other side of the mountains in Switzerland. This was published in Historical Biology, which was open access, so I got all the nitty-gritty details. Good. And it was written by Daniel Marty and others. What makes this one especially exciting is that they named a new ichnogenus from the late Jurassic, and it's a giant theropod that was discovered while constructing the A16 highway through the mountains. Hmm. And apparently they already finished the highway, so I guess it didn't really get too much in the way. But a lot of times we see that where construction projects reveal dinosaurs. They named the new type of track Jurabrontes curtulensis, and Jurabrontes is an analogy to Eubrontes, which is a very common track in the U.S., and it's also probably a theropod track. They're all over the Connecticut River Valley and stuff like that. And Jurabrontes refers to the Jura Mountains as well as the late Jurassic Age that the tracks are from. So they're a little bit longer than they are wide, and they are huge. <laughs> Which is exciting because everyone likes a huge theropod. And if you're wondering what Kurt Duelensis means, it's named after Kurt Duel, which is the 12th century name for a nearby village, which is now called Kurt Doe. So I don't know why they went back to the 12th century. Maybe they thought it sounded cooler or looked cooler when you write it down. I guess so, yeah. They also found some large sauropod and small theropod tracks nearby kind of rounded out the little ecosystem. The largest track of Jurabrantes is 78.5 centimeters or two foot 6.9 inches long. So that's a pretty big foot, especially considering that's just the tiptoes technically of the foot. And that's similar in size to a Tyrannosaurus, which is possibly a Tyrannosaurus footprint, thus the name that's so similar. And they call it giant because it's larger than 50 centimeters or 1.6 feet. And there's different classifications that some people are using. It's estimated to be about 150 million years old from the late Jurassic. 
Combining those details, the authors say that late Cretaceous and Jurassic apex predators may have been similar in size, which is really interesting to me because I always think about the late Cretaceous with T-Rex and stuff. You're getting like the largest, most exciting, I guess, <laughs> predatory dinosaurs. But in the Jurassic, there might have been some too, and maybe we just haven't found the remains yet. We just are now starting to find footprints. It was probably a megalosaurid or a large allosaurid, and it was possibly between 10 and 12 meters or 33 and 39 feet long, although the writers of the paper were saying that's pretty speculative because all we have is a footprint and we're just kind of guessing based on similar footprints. They also uploaded all the tracks digitally, and they're in good shape, so it's really worth a look if you're interested in seeing what these new footprints look like. That's cool. They've shared it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best thing about open access. You can get all the details and everything. So I just mentioned that those tracks were in good condition. And so I wanted to mention this other paper by Stephen Gatesy and Peter Falkingham. They published it in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. So really what they're talking about is what do people mean when they say that a footprint is well-preserved? I usually use it to mean that it's foot-like <laughs> in that the footprint matches the anatomy of what the foot was probably actually like on the dinosaur. Makes sense. But really, that's a misnomer. Preserved should refer to if it appears close to how it originally did before you know weathering and all these other processes affected it. And the two are actually very different. So if you think of footprints that you yourself make when you're walking in like wet sand and the footprint looks just like how your foot does, you might say that's an accurate anatomical representation of your foot. Whereas if you think of what your foot would look like if you walked in some thick mud and your foot sinks into it and then you pull it out, it might just leave like a little hole where like the tip of your shoe gets sucked out of it. If you flash forward like 100 million years, you might see both of those prints and they could both be preserved very well and they would both give different information about your foot and how you move your foot. So the preservation itself is important as well as whether or not the trackway looks like an actual anatomical version of the foot. So. It depends on what you're interested in. If you're only interested in the foot anatomy, you're only interested in if it looks foot-like, and then you might say, oh, that's a well-preserved footprint because it looks like a foot. But if you're interested in the biomechanics of the animal, you might say, oh, that weird little hole is awesome <laughs> because now I can see where its toes were while it was lifting them out of the mud kind of thing. So yeah, they're basically advocating for differentiating between well-preserved versus foot-like. <laughs> never really thought about that before yeah and i'm probably going to mess that up in the next couple articles that are also about footprints <laughs> but i wanted to clarify that that's really the terminology we should use and apparently it's it's a pretty big problem because they felt the need to write a paper about it the next trackway i want to mention is from the journal of african earth sciences i don't think we've talked about any papers from there before it's written by jeremy martina and others and what researchers found was some new footprints in Western Cameroon, which is kind of like on the border between Western and Central Africa. It's still on the West Coast of Africa, but Western Africa is kind of that like bulging bit on the West side, but not all the way North up to Morocco. It's like the specific little set of countries. And Cameroon is kind of the first Central Africa country. 
So they found tracks from both sauropods and small theropods. And from what I can tell, there are about 20 tracks spread across about 20 meters or 65 feet. And that's based on little tiny pictures that I could see through the paywall. And <laughs> they're believed to be from the late Cretaceous about 90 to 100 million years ago. And that's pretty young for Saharan Africa. So if we can find more tracks in the area, it'll help us to learn about the Trans-Saharan Seaway, which is new to me. I guess there was a seaway that separated Western Africa up through Libya and the rest of the continent from the rest of Africa. And that occurred at least once during the Cretaceous. So it's a big question to say like, hey, how did that affect different groups of dinosaurs? Hopefully we find more tracks or maybe even remains and we can learn about that. Yeah, we don't hear that much about dinosaurs coming out of Africa. And speaking of not finding that much in Africa, <laughs> there is another one, one country south of Cameroon in the country Gabon, and it was published in Geodiversitis by Makaya Mvubu, I think I got that right, and others. They found seven tracks and... I should upfront say they're not positive that they're dinosaur tracks because they're not that foot-like, <laughs> although they are pretty well preserved. <laughs> there, you did remember. Yeah, I remembered this time at least. So there are seven tracks and four of them are tridactyl, which means they could be a theropod or an ornithopod, and they're about the right size for a dinosaur track, so it seems likely. There are also two oval prints which are big and likely sauropods, and then one four, they said four-fingered print, but I think they just mean four-digit print, because I don't know why they would assume it's a finger and not a foot, especially since it's on the ground. The coolest thing is that it's the first ever documentation of dinosaurs in Gabon, so we're adding like a new country to the list of where dinosaurs are known to have existed. I think that's great. Yeah, and more from Africa. Yeah, and hopefully it will help to pique interest for dinosaurs in the region and we'll get more paleontologists and more research going on there. I was also reading an article recently about some dinosaurs that were excavated for profit and how the guy was saying, like, if I hadn't excavated these, they were weathering out of the rock really quickly and no one might have ever seen them. They might have just completely been lost to science. And I think that's a good point especially in places in the world where no one's interested in dinosaurs, there could be all sorts of great dinosaurs popping up and people might even see them and just have no interest in what they are, not recognize them at all. So getting people in all areas of the world interested in paleontology really helps because then when dinosaur tracks pop up somewhere, people are like, oh, look, it's a dinosaur track <laughs> rather than like, you know. This random thing. Yeah, just thinking like it's a rock that needs to be moved or destroyed for a road or whatever. So I'm happy to see dinosaurs popping up in new countries. And I also really like one of the pictures in the article, which was a dinosaur print in the middle of the picture. And then there's a rock hammer on one side and a big machete on the other side of the print. <laughs> I think like with SVP, they have the marsh pick with a few vertebrae. I think if Africa ever has like a paleontology conference, they should have like a machete and a rock hammer. There you go. You pitch it to them. Yeah. That looks really cool. <laughs> Next, thanks to our patron, Luke, for sharing this post with us. So Luke recently launched Jurassic Files, which is a site about paleontology and its benefits to science. And they recently interviewed Mike Leshin from the Bureau of Land Management in Utah and talked about the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry. 
And we've talked about the Cleveland Lord Quarry before, but it's cool to get this insight. So it is, for those who might not know, quote, the densest concentration of Jurassic dinosaur bones ever found, end quote. It's quite a statement. <laughs> it's a mystery why there's so many allosaurs in this quarry. Apparently, the quarry was probably found by a cowboy or a sheep herder, and the University of Utah started work there in the late 1920s, and Princeton University also did some work there. And the quarry is named after Malcolm Lloyd, a Princeton alum who donated $10,000 to the work, and William Stokes from Princeton, who became head of the geology department at the University of Utah, wanted to honor his hometown Cleveland, Utah, and <laughs> Malcolm Lloyd. I had no idea that was the thinking behind the name, so we'll post a link. You can read the full interview. It's very interesting. So it's just named after a random other city in Utah? Well, at least it's in the same state. I guess so. That's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> Next, Smithsonian Mag wrote a feature about Clayton Phipps, a.k.a. the Dinosaur Cowboy, who found the dueling dinosaurs of Montana, which is a Ceratopsian and a small Tyrannosaur who were preserved mid-fight. So pretty exciting sounding. It's a pretty long story, but the gist is there's a question of whether the public will ever see these dueling dinosaurs. So Phipps and his team excavated the fossils themselves, they were on his property, and in doing so, they didn't document everything that a scientist would. Because of that, he had a hard time selling these dinosaurs, and he tried contacting museums, he got close to selling it to one, but then apparently they agreed on a price and then he never heard back. And in 2013, the dinosaurs were brought to auction. They're valued at $9 million, but there was only one bid for $5.5 million, and that didn't meet the reserve. And to give some context, Sue the T-Rex sold for $7.6 million back in 1997. That was unusual, though. They had sponsors backing the sale. But because of that, it spurred more people to search for fossils and sell them and also have these expectations that they could sell it for a high amount. Yeah. Since then, though, fossils have not been selling for as high of prices. And Phipps said that he loves fossils, and he wants a fair price, since there's a lot of people who helped him excavate them. And there are museums who have recently expressed interest again, but it's too early for him to share details. So hopefully a museum buys it. It sounds like a really cool find. Yeah, I hope so. I hope they go on display publicly, Yeah, for sure. But there's some scientists who think it, they have no scientific value, since none of that extra data was preserved. Yeah, that is... A shame, but I think that was the article I was reading where he talked about how they were eroding out of the hill really quickly, and yeah. if he hadn't taken them out, they probably would have just been lost. Yeah, yeah, so it's a tough situation. Yeah, and I think he also said he didn't expect there to be that much in there. Mm -hmm. You know, he, it was just like one bone sticking out, and he figured, oh, there might be like a ceratopsian in here or something, and then he ended up finding like whatever, some sort of tyrannosaurid or something that's kind of like locked in with it, sort of like the protoceratops and velociraptor in Mongolia. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I really hope this does go on display, but getting more than 5.5 million out of a museum is pretty tough. Yes, <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. Equatorial Minnesota wrote up a summary of U.S. National Park Service dinosaurs, so there's a map that shows where non-avian dinosaur bones or tracks have been found or are historically associated, and this includes Yellowstone, Dinosaur National Monument, and many more. Most of the dinosaurs have been found in the Colorado Plateau in Alaska, and we'll post the link. You can read all the fun details. Alaska? Really? Yeah. That's surprising. I guess because if you're talking specifically about national parks... A lot of Alaska is park. <laughs> yes. 
Next, Utah State University Eastern Prehistoric Museum has a new exhibit from now until October 28th called Clubs, Horns, and Shields, Armored Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals. Visitors can see dinosaurs with 14-inch spikes on its back and other creatures like a giant scorpion and crocodile. The exhibit was made by Robert Gaston from Gaston Design Inc. We've met him. And the museum is in Price, Utah and is open Monday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Cool. Yeah, when we saw him, he had a little uh, pamphlet about that upcoming exhibit. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on with museums and exhibits. So in Martinsville, Virginia, the Virginia Museum of Natural History is having a dino festival from July 21st and 22nd to celebrate its new exhibit, Dinosaurs, Reign of the Giants. The festival takes place from 3 to 8 p.m. on July 21st and 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the 22nd. And there will be hands-on activities, a stegosaurus display from the Smithsonian, a triceratops skull, and a cast of Acrocanthosaurus. The Children's Museum of Indianapolis in Indiana is offering dinosaur digs for families, teachers, and adults. Digs are for ages 8 and up. And the family ones last for two days. The teacher and adult digs last for five days. Visitors work with paleontologists and science educators and explore the Hell Creek Formation in South Dakota at the Ruth Mason Quarry. There's an Edmontosaurus bone bed, and pretty much everyone finds something per season, is what they said on the site. All finds go to the paleontology prep lab where people can watch the fossils be prepared. And this is the 12th year of the digs, so must be doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll post a link so you can learn more if you want to sign up. Next, Dan Schur, who has been the paleontologist at Dinosaur National Monument for 38 years since 1979, has retired. And he's worked with institutions, colleagues, students, researchers, and volunteers, and helped rebuild the Quarry Exhibit Hall. He launched the Carnegie Quarry website, which uh, we talked to him about in an earlier episode. And he worked with Make-A-Wish Children which is awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and he said he's enjoyed interacting with visitors. Quote, talking to a five-year-old about dinosaurs and seeing the gleam in the eyes and a big grin is not just satisfying. It's like looking into a mirror, end <laughs> quote. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. Next, congrats to Jim Kirkland, who recently received the 2017 Crawford Award for his work in... The Lower Cretaceous in east-central Utah, the Cedar Mountain Formation and its bounding strata from Geology of the Intermountain West. The award is in honor of Arthur L. Crawford, the first director of the Utah Geological Society, and it, quote, recognizes outstanding achievement, accomplishments, or contributions by a current UGS scientist to the understanding of some aspect of Utah geology or earth science, end quote. Nice. Yeah, well-deserved. This next one, uh, so Mostly Mammoths, Mummies, and Museums posted this feature about Henry Sharp, who's a 15-year-old paleo artist and a future paleontologist, and he volunteers at the Royal Ontario Museum Kids Camp. He also posts artwork on his website, writes about paleontology on his blog, and he's published scientific articles already. Hmm. So you can see his artwork at henrysharp.weebly.com, and we'll post a link. But that's impressive that he's done so much, and he's only 15. Yeah. And it's, I think, pretty accurate paleo art. So, good for him. Speaking of paleo art, Motherboard posted some images from a recently published book called Paleo Art Visions of the Prehistoric Past, and it's a visual history of artwork inspired by paleontology. Not all of it's dinosaurs, but it includes paintings, mosaics, lithographs, sculptures, ads, and more from museum archives, private collections, and other places from the last 200 years or so. 
Among the dinosaur-specific art is the late Cretaceous landscape of the South Gobi by May Petrovic, Mitrik Klebinokov, and Viktor Arnovich Duvidov from 1986. And that's a painting with rainbows and a wide variety of colors, and it features a tyrannosaur, a hadrosaur, and sauropod, among others. It's really pretty. There's also Tree of Life by Alexander Mikhailovich Belashov from 1984, and that's a terracotta installation at the Orlov Museum of Paleontology in Moscow that, quote, dramatizes the evolutionary history of life on Earth in a style that seems more consistent with hagiographic church frescoes, end quote. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, it's an interesting combination. Yeah, I imagine it's uh, really impressive to see in person. Another reason to go to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Inverse published a couple of stories about Lamb Before Time, which is actually a pretty cool angle. It was on the accuracy of the movie. And the first one talks about what the movie got right about dinosaurs, which is basically the sad fact that, quote, life for young dinosaurs was solitary and dangerous, end quote. In real life, for example, a sauropod baby wouldn't know its mother. Petrie also probably wouldn't have known his parents. He could probably have flown as soon as he was born. Ducky, the hadrosaur, however, may have known her parents. So Mike Habib, a paleontologist from the University of Southern California who grew up with the movie, he shared this funny imaginary scene. Like, Ducky would say, but my parents are gone. And Littlefoot would say, you're what? (laughs) And then Ducky would say, my parents, I think they were killed by the vicious predator. And then Littlefoot would say, okay, I'm going to go eat leaves now and try to grow really big so nothing can kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Chomper, the T-Rex who appears in Land Before Time 2, would also have probably known his parents. And Habib says that if you have a kid who wants to know where the rest of the baby dinosaurs in Land Before Time are, you can say, quote, they're already dead, honey. They've already been consumed, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> the second piece on Inverse talks about seven things Land Before Time got wrong about dinosaurs. So apparently they got a lot more wrong than they got right, but <laughs> still a great movie. So they spoke with Jordan Mallon from the Canadian Museum of Nature, who also grew up with the movie, and also with Habib again. And as a quick overview, again, Littlefoot wouldn't have known his mother. The sharp tooth wouldn't have tried to fight Littlefoot's mother because she's heavy and she would have had a really powerful tail. So unless she was already injured, probably wouldn't have gone after her. Ducky wouldn't have been able to swim. Petrie would always have been able to fly. And of course, Petrie is a pterosaur, not a dinosaur, though it doesn't explicitly say anywhere in the movie that he is a dinosaur. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah. (laughs) And Sharptooth wouldn't have bothered chasing after hatchlings for a meal. Also, the characters wouldn't have lived at the same time, and they didn't quite look the way we know dinosaurs looked now. Like, Sarah has too many claws on her forefeet, apparently. Plus, many dinosaurs had feathers or fuzz, and pterosaurs also had fuzz. Yeah, I'm not sure about saying that sharp tooth definitely wouldn't have chased them because the plot of the movie is it's like the world is ending basically and everybody's running out of food yeah so if they're the only thing around sure you'd go after them and he's hungry that's true that's a good point next atlas obscura wrote about gertie the dinosaur gertie as you know is an animated sauropod created by windsor mckay back in 1914 and mckay made gertie with more than 10,000 drawings and he made a vaudeville act around it where he walked on stage with a whip and then called out to gertie and gave her commands that she performed on screen and people liked gertie so much that later that year mckay turned it into a motion picture and if you like to see gertie in real life you can actually see her in disney world as an ice cream stand (laughs) 
And you can watch the whole video for free on Wikipedia because it's... Public domain. Yeah, because it's so old. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the first ever... They call it the first ever keyframe animation, which I think is basically what people think of when they think of animation. Yeah. Jen Lewis, a comedian, has taken screenshots of Jurassic Park and replaced the dinosaurs in those shots with characters from the TV show Dinosaurs. (laughs) So, you know, Earl, Fran, Robbie, Charlene, Baby, and Ethel. The scenes include Earl waving to the lawyer on the toilet in the rain (laughs) instead of a T-Rex roaring at him. Uh, Everybody's looking at Baby hatching from an egg. Uh, Alan Grant's listening to the breathing of Earl's Triceratops boss. I can't remember his name. So the boss is in a suit instead of listening to a sick Triceratops. (laughs) And Nedry's laughing in the rain and there's an ominous Ethel, who's the grandma in the background instead of a Dilophosaurus. (laughs) That's great. I love that whole show. And it had such a great ending. Yeah. (laughs) So the, yeah, that concept mashing them together is amazing. People Mm -hmm. have responded really well. (laughs) Next, Carlos Perez and Mauricio Ortegon made a funny video that asked people to treat dinosaurs more nicely. The video shows a theropod replica on the back of a truck on a freeway, and they're talking about, like, oh, this is so unfair. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> isn't it basically bungeed, like, around its neck? Yeah. And it's, like, all squished and it, yep. <laughs> uncomfortable looking. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, one woman who dressed up in an inflatable T-Rex costume and took sensual photo boudoir photos for her fiance so the woman is nicole stein and she worked with her friend and canadian photographer kissy spicer and apparently it was very difficult to pose sometimes because you're knocking stuff over and hitting the ceiling fan in the costume but they turned the photos into a gift book and nicole and kissy i'm sure had a lot of laughs making the photos (laughs) yeah i wondered when i saw those pictures if they had to just like buy special outfits because i'm sure she's not the same size wearing the inflatable outfit as she is normally yeah (laughs) and how you guess like this is the size clothes i'll need for my inflatable t-rex costume (laughs) (laughs) hard to say next thanks to michelle who sent this one to us via patreon so you can now buy dinosaur purple capri leggings on smitten they look pretty comfortable. They have stegosaurs, hadrosaurs, tyrannosaurs, sauropods, ceratopsians, plus pterosaurus printed on them. And they look kind of like polygonal shapes. So pretty cool. The description says they're super soft leggings. They take five business days to ship and they cost 40 US dollars. They also sell other dinosaur prints, including a ring sling, which you can use to help carry your baby. And last in the news, Island 359 is out for VR on both Rift and Vive. I just tried playing it, and it has two modes. There's Arcade and Mercenary. And Arcade mode is basically an endless stream of dinosaurs trying to kill you. So (laughs) you basically stand there with an unlimited amount of ammo shooting at them. And you do have to reload, which is problematic, because there's an endless stream of dinosaurs running at you. And that is how I died every time. (laughs) It starts with dinosaurs that are really small. They're bigger than Compsognathus, but... Not quite as big as Coelophysis. I don't really know what they were going for. Maybe some kind of Ornithomimid. And they kind of like chirp, sort of, and they run over to you. And it's helpful that they all make a lot of noise before they're attacking you, even though they're hunting. And like we've said before, dinosaurs definitely didn't make noise when they were hunting. (laughs) 
after the Coelophysis and Compsognathus hybrid comes after you for a little while, it moves up to quote-unquote raptors, which are basically featherless Utah raptors and very similar to the Jurassic Park velociraptors. And I was on easy mode, so I made it through the first quote-unquote hour, but it's really like a minute. They just say, like, you survived the first hour. And then I died very quickly in the second hour because a raptor jumped on top of me, and I didn't realize that they could jump now. (laughs) So I assume that if I had survived a little bit longer, eventually a T-Rex would have shown up because they use T-Rex in some of their artwork. And... Really, the only reason I even survived as long as I did is that the raptors are always like screeching and everything's yelling when it's coming over to you. And they come from all different sides. So you have to keep like spinning around trying to shoot at them. (laughs) That sounds tiring. (laughs) It's very scary, actually. It's pretty intense. I did the beach scene because that seemed the least scary rather than like the deep woods. (laughs) It was still intense. I had to turn the volume down because it was like freaking me out with all these like roaring dinosaurs. On the beach scene, do you have to worry about stuff coming up from the water i mean you're pretty far from the water you're probably like a couple hundred feet away then in mercenary mode there are two options one looks really similar to the arcade except you roam around to find more guns and i think you get like paid depending on how many of them you shoot or something like that and then the other one is a big hunt (laughs) where you have a bow and an arrow and you try to hunt what i think is a triceratops and that reminded me of that picture on facebook of steven spielberg sitting next to the sick triceratops and someone Mm. jokingly posted like that he was a hunter that killed it and everyone was all outraged yeah so you can relive that thing that never happened (laughs) (laughs) so i managed to sneak up on the triceratops without getting attacked by the raptors which are kind of around it and that's what you're supposed to do and then i have a bow and arrow and there's a triceratops that's freaking enormous so i shot it with a couple of arrows and then it immediately killed me in exactly the way you'd expect a triceratops to kill somebody just charged me and hit me with its horns mm. i was also on easy in that mode i don't know what it's like i i don't know maybe i'm just terrible <laughs> <laughs> but the game is pretty hard i can't imagine how hard the other difficulties must be the game does have a few clever details like when you ride in a chopper you can stick your head into a bucket and you'll skip the animation <laughs> so it's like if you're getting sick you'd skip it And I will say that since I was playing on an Oculus Rift and I only have two sensors, it's designed to have you always facing the same direction. And this game really doesn't work with that. You can technically use the thumbstick to turn around so you could stay facing the same direction in the room the whole time and it would work with two sensors. But when you're in VR, it's really hard to keep track of when you need to turn so that you're facing the right way in the room. So really, you should get another sensor and do the whole room scale thing. That's an option now. I think it's probably worth it. It was $13 in the Oculus Store. It's on sale right now. It's $20 on Steam, still pretty cheap. And it's early access, which means there's still some bugs, but it worked actually really smoothly for me. I didn't have any major problems, unless maybe it's not supposed to be that hard. I don't know. (laughs) Couldn't tell you. Yeah, Sabrina will never play this game. Never? I don't know about never. Do you want hordes of angry dinosaurs running at you? No, not really. And as a reminder, we're going to have our survey up for one more week. So if there's something that you want to share with us about how we should change the show or what rewards you might be interested in, then head over to bit.ly slash IKD2017. And I didn't mention this earlier, but IKD should be in all caps. It doesn't work if you use lowercase IKD, but if you use the link in our show notes, then obviously you don't have to worry about that. 
And like I said before, all the questions are optional. So if there's just one area that you really want to tell us about, you could skip the other questions. Yeah, let us know what you think, what you'd like to see. There's also a comment field where you can say anything that's not in the automated questions. And we appreciate any and all feedback. Yeah, definitely. Because we make the show for our listeners. So we want to know what's working and what's not working. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Antarctopelta, which was a request from BMX How-To via YouTube, so thanks. The name means Antarctic Shield, and it lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Antarctica. Bet you couldn't see that coming. <laughs> it's hard to classify because it had characteristics of two different families, Ankylosaur and Notosaur. Thompson and others in 2011 suggested that it's the basal-most known Notosaurid. There's only one species, Antarctopelta oliveroi. And the species name is in honor of Eduardo Olivero, who found the holotype, first mentioned it in print, and then worked in Antarctica for many years. It was discovered in 1986 on James Ross Island by Argentine geologists Eduardo Olivera and Roberta Scasso. They were hiking and they spotted fragments. It was the first dinosaur found in Antarctica, but the second dinosaur from Antarctica to be formally named. The first one named was Cryolophosaurus. That one wasn't found, though, until 1993. It was found in shallow marine deposits, and it took almost a decade to excavate because of harsh weather and frozen ground. The holotype consists of three teeth, part of the lower jaw, skull fragments, vertebrae, partial limb bones, toe bones, and pieces of armor. A lot of the bones are in poor condition because they were fragmented by freeze-thaw weathering. Antarctopelta had been written about in previous publications in 1987 and 1991, but it wasn't named until 2006. And it was named by Leonardo Salgado and Zoma Gasparini. It was medium-sized, estimated to be about 13 feet or 4 meters long, and it was stocky and herbivorous. It had leaf-shaped asymmetrical teeth, and it had large teeth compared to other ankylosaurs. The largest one was 0.4 inches or 10 millimeters across. Oh, that's a huge tooth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was quadrupedal. There's six different osteoderms that were found near Antarctopelta, but not many were articulated with the skeleton, so it's unclear where they were on the body. One osteoderm is the base of a large spike. There's also flat oblong plates similar to the ones that were around the neck of the notosaurid in Montonia. And there were also large armor circular plates with smaller polygonal nodules that may have formed a shield over the hips. It had an oval-shaped osteoderm with a keel running down the middle that was found in the ribs, so it may have run in rows along its flank. And it had ossicles, small bony nodules that were probably all around the body. Not much of the skull is known, but all skull fragments found were heavily ossified. And one bone, a superorbital, had a short spike that would have come outwards over the eye. Not all of the tail was found, but some of the vertebrae found probably was near the tip of the tail, and they had ossified tendons, which would have stiffened the tail, probably to support a tail club, though that has not been found for Antarctopelta. Notosaurs do not have club tails. So at first, scientists thought that Antarctopelta was juvenile, but parts of the vertebrae were fused together, as seen in adults, so maybe it was a subadult. Back when Antarctopelta lived, the Earth was warmer. There wasn't ice in Antarctica yet. So it lived in forests with conifers and possibly deciduous trees, but there still would have been long periods of darkness in the winter. The Antarctic Peninsula at this time was connected to South America, so animals could have traveled between continents, though there's no evidence yet of common ankylosaurs between Antarctica and South America. It probably lived in the same time and area as ornithopods, like Trinosaura. And our fun fact of the day is that there is a pretty big difference between an asteroid, a meteoroid, a comet, a meteor, 
and a meteorite. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yeah, and I wanted to figure out what the difference is because we often talk about the Chicxulub impactor and other potential catastrophic uh, mass extinction events based on large bodies colliding with Earth, and I wanted to know which one's which. So according to the Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, which is a division of NASA that tracks asteroids and meteoroids and things orbiting near Earth to try to make sure we don't get wiped out like the dinosaurs did, a comet is a relatively small at times active object whose ice can vaporize in sunlight forming an atmosphere or coma of dust and gas and sometimes a tail of dust and or gas and it's usually from the outer solar system which makes sense because it's icy so you got to be far away so it doesn't all boil off and you can think of Halley's comet goes by once every what 80 something years or something like that and you can see the tail behind it when it goes by because the sun boils off some of its ice it's a pretty interesting kind of object similar to that is an asteroid and that's also a relatively small and they say relatively small but i think when they say that they're referring to in comparison to something like a planet <laughs> <laughs> so small compared to a planet not necessarily small compared to a person it's inactive and it's a rocky body orbiting the sun so it doesn't have ice it doesn't have a tail and all that kind of stuff and they're usually from the asteroid belt which is between mars and jupiter and then is a meteoroid which is a small particle from a comet or asteroid orbiting the sun so basically a meteoroid could be from a comet or an asteroid but it's smaller and other than that it's pretty similar then a meteor is just the light phenomenon which results from a meteoroid entering the Earth's atmosphere and it vaporizes before it hits the Earth. And that's also known as a shooting star. So a meteor shower is literally just little blinks of light. It doesn't really have to do with the object itself. So it's a meteoroid while it's in space and then it's just a meteor while it burns up. Finally, a meteorite is a meteoroid <laughs> that survives its passage through the Earth's atmosphere and lands on the Earth's surface. So if it doesn't burn up and become just a meteor, then it becomes a meteorite when it hits the Earth. So basically what you have is you have comets, which are icy things orbiting. You have asteroids, which are rocky things orbiting. And then you have meteoroids, which are little pieces of either a comet or an asteroid. So to me, the question is, since a meteoroid is called a small particle and an asteroid is called a relatively small body, what is the dividing line between an asteroid and a meteoroid? So technically, the definition of a meteoroid is that it's significantly smaller than an asteroid and considerably larger than an atom or a molecule. <laughs> That's very... A very big range. Yeah. So like if you took the largest asteroid and you said, oh, that's significantly smaller, it could still be many miles across. And then, you know, an atom is basically the smallest thing we can measure. So usually in practice, the dividing line is between one and 10 meters. So smaller than that, they call it a meteoroid and larger than that, they call it an asteroid. Although sometimes they do consider the line to be more like one kilometer. So there's still a little bit of disagreement there. And according to the Lunar and Planetary Institute, the Chicxulub impactor was probably an asteroid or a comet and was about 10 to 15 kilometers in diameter. So by almost anybody's definition, it wouldn't have been a meteoroid. It would have been an asteroid or a comet. But we can't tell which because it's pretty much blasted to smithereens. <laughs> 
I don't know. Maybe Sean Gulick will be able to figure it out from his core samples. That would be neat. Although he's at the peak ring, so maybe not. Cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our growing group of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.